Hello, it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites. What fresh new hell is this, I hear you ask? Well, today's subject is Templar, from Heroes to Heretics, the rise and fall of the great military orders. And it is a fascinating topic, because the military orders and chivalric orders of the Crusader period dominated and certainly influenced the politics, the religion, the mechanics of the age. And so I've always integrated them, used them in plot lines in my historical thrillers. The Templars were fantastic. I put them into Perdition, which was about the 1291 Siege of Acre, the last stand of the Crusaders. I put them into other books such as Penance, What Happened to the Four Knights Who Murdered Thomas Beckett. I put the Hospitaller Knights, the Knights of St. John, into Blood Rock, the Siege of Malta, the Great Siege of Malta of 1565. And of course, the lesser known Leper Knights of St. Lazarus in Pilgrim. So they've always been there. They've always been used by me, certainly, in historical thrillers. And hopefully my fascination for them and for that period um, will come through today. I want to start with the Templars because so much has been talked about them, written about them over the years and so many conspiracies have risen up uh, around the subject. The Templars were founded really by Hugh de Payne, their first Grand Master in 1118, consecrated by King Baldwin II and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem in 1119. and it was very much part of the sort of Cistercian movement. Bernard of Clairvaux, the abbot of Clairvaux, had really pushed them, wrote their laws, really, the rules that governed them. And they were backed by nobles such as Hugh de Champagne and attracted a lot of sort of lesser nobility and younger sons of that period. They came about because the First Crusade had taken Jerusalem in 1099, and there had to be a means of protecting the pilgrim routes and protecting the holy sites, such as the Holy Sepulchre and other places, that had been identified earlier on by Saint Helena or Saint Helena in 326 AD. So places like the Church of the Nativity, um, Golgotha, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where Christ was both crucified and, and buried, so all these sites had to be guarded and so the Templars grew up out of that. They were given a place on Temple Mount by King Baldwin and there they stayed. About 300 knights uh, ended up there looking after the place, looking after the route between Jerusalem and Jaffa going back to the coast through the Judean hills. And they were important and they were very good warriors, very committed and highly pious and religious. But as their influence grew, so did the money around them, so did the trade, so did the banking, and they became the great bankers and the, the great traders, the great merchants of the age. They had a huge fleet um, based in places like La Rochelle in France or Bristol in England. And those fleets carried pilgrims and trade back and forth from the Holy Land. So they became vastly wealthy. And that created jealousy. And eventually it caused their downfall because King 
Philip IV of France decided he wanted their money. And once the Crusaders had been pushed out of Jerusalem by Saladin after the Battle of Hattin in 1187, there they were, the Crusaders were based in Outremer, their kingdom along the coast, with Templar castles, with Hospitaller castles, and they were supplied from the sea. But neither side had the strength to push the others out. So for 200 years, the Crusaders were still in the Holy Land and the Templars played a part. And because they had been on Temple Mount for that first century through the 12th century, from uh, 11, 1819 uh, right up to 1187 when Saladin pushed all the knights from, from Jerusalem, the Templars had time to dig. And in 1860s, um, the British Royal Engineers found a tunnel shaft that the Templars had dug 80 feet down and with tunnels radiating out from that. And that has started all the conspiracy theories over the years. What were the Templars looking for? What did they find? And the main thrusts have been that, first of all, they discovered some great architectural uh, tome uh, written by the uh, chief architect, the chief mason of uh, King Solomon. And that was Hiram Abif. And he's always mentioned in the third degree, the Freemason ceremony. And everyone says, oh, this is where the Freemasons are linked to the Templars. What was going on? Um, you know, what did the Templars discover? Well, if you actually look at uh, Templar architecture, it's not that sophisticated. Uh, they didn't go in for the sort of Gothic architecture that, that was happening in Europe around the same time. I mean, if you look at Temple Church in, in London, for example, it's all very, very basic stuff. As for things like stained glass, where did that come from? Well, the, the Muslims were doing that long before the Crusaders ever arrived. So, so I can't see that connection. People go, oh, the Star of David, if you look at the, 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 the building, the design of churches. Well, the Star of David was very common in terms of uh, Christian architecture as well as Jewish architecture because of course the, the Star of David, the six-pointed star, is based on the seal of Solomon, the two triangles, one inverted on top of each other. So there's nothing strange about that. That's the architecture angle, you know, the idea that the Templars had discovered the, the golden ratio and the, the sacred equations and all of that sort of thing. And, and I very much doubt that. The other thing about Templar tunnels was that people said they had discovered relics under Temple Mount, which was the original uh, Temple of Solomon, where the Dome of the Rock is today, the, the, that gold dome on, on Temple Mount. You know, had they discovered amazing relics? Some say that it was the Ark of the Covenant that the Templars discovered. Well. Again, I doubt it because they would have displayed it, they would have carried it in battle just as the Israelites did. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, carried the tablets of Moses, was the holiest of holies. But it's really unlikely that the Templars ever discovered that. But it was always claimed that the prophet Jeremiah had hidden the Ark of the Covenant when Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians had 
besieged, invested, taken Jerusalem in 597-586 BC. But there's no evidence that Templars ever found that. It's claimed that maybe they found the Lance of Christ, but another Lance of Christ had been found in Antioch during the First Crusade in 1098 and had been carried by the Christians as they attacked the Muslims and routed the Muslims. Uh, th that Lance ended up with Charlemagne, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. So again, it's unlikely the Templars had that Lance. Uh, it said that they had a piece of the true cross and they always carried a piece of the true cross uh, in battle, paraded it before a battle. The actual true cross itself, which was lost at the Battle of Hattin against Saladin, the Crusader army was defeated, 20,000 strong Crusader army in 1187. That had been identified by, by St. Helena in 326 AD and had been kept, the patibulum, the cross span on which Christ has uh, purportedly been crucified, had been nailed. That jewel-covered patibulum crossbar uh, had, had been kept in the church of the Holy Sepulchre for centuries. So the, the, the Templars never had that, that whole span, that whole part of the true cross. And then there were talk of the the Holy Grail, of the Crown of Thorns. You know, everyone has wanted to know what did the Templars smuggle out um, from the fall of Acre in 1291 when they had been pushed back to the sea. They held out, they were attacked by the Sultan of Egypt and eventually the Crusader Kingdom fell. And I've walked down that tunnel down which the Templars took their treasure the night before their, their lion fortress fell. And so that, I suppose, was the start of the Da Vinci Code, you know, this idea of smuggling out the secret of the Templars. After the fall of Acre in 1291, after the Crusaders had been pushed out of the Holy Land after 200 years there, the Templars settled really on places like Cyprus. And th then they stayed there. And eventually, um, come 1307, they were persecuted. They were shut down by Philip IV of France. Uh, he took all their treasure, he took their money, uh, he arrested 15,000 of them. Uh, thousands died in prison, were tortured to death or starved to death. Uh, in 1310, uh, 54 of them were burnt at the stake for recanting on their confessions. And in 1314, their last Grand Master, Jacques de Molay, was burnt at the stake uh, just in front of uh, Notre Dame Cathedral. And that was the end of the Templars, at least in France. And there's been so much myth and legend, of course, written about that. They had actually been absolved by Pope Clement V at the same time, but he was so scared of Philip IV of France because the Pope was based in Poitiers and didn't want an invasion army by the French king. Uh, basically, the, the Pope's predecessor, Boniface, had been uh, threatened by Philip IV uh, before, so Philip IV had sent an army, and so Clement V did not want that happening, so he never publicized that absolution of the Templars, and the rest, as they say, is history, and the Templars were persecuted, handed, and their property taken. But elsewhere, 
the Templars survived, and that's what's so interesting, that's what's so fascinating. First of all, their large fleet at La Rochelle disappeared. There's no evidence that it was ever seized by the French king. And so where did it go? Some have claimed, the conspiracy theorists have claimed it went to America and elsewhere, but they probably just sailed for Portugal and Spain. That's where the Templars grew afresh. They became grounded and very wealthy again. Their property was not confiscated, not taken by the crown. The King Dynas of Portugal essentially created a new order, the Order of Christ, and that was absorbed by the papacy later on and is one of the key orders of the papacy today, the Supreme Order of Christ. But back then in Portugal, they became incredibly rich, incredibly successful and incredibly important because they were very much behind the great discoveries of the 15th century. Prince Henry, Henry the navigator of Portugal, when he was doing his explorations, um, sending expeditions or taking expeditions uh, down to the Cape Verde Islands, to West Africa, to uh, the Azores, all over the place. Who should be leading them? Who should be helping? But the Order of Christ, those sailors, those navigators uh, from the, the Templar orders, basically. Those with experience of trade and discovery. They were important in that. Uh, later on, in uh, the late uh, 15th century, you, you got someone like Vasco da Gama, and again, who should be there but the Order of Christ, those, those old Templars, the ancient order, those navigators, those sailors, uh, and they accompanied Vasco da Gama in 1497 on his trip around the Cape of Good Hope when he ended up in India. So the, the Templar spirit, the Templar code spread and was maintained in Portugal. Again in Spain, the Templars survived in places like Aragon, King James II, simply rolled them into the Order of Montessa. And he needed them because there was a constant war with the Moors. And they, their fighting spirit, their prowess, their wealth was extremely useful to the Castilian and Aragon aristocracy and, and kings of the period. So. Again, they survived, and later that order was, was absorbed into other orders, and, and uh, the, the, the sort of culture continued, the culture went on. So it wasn't the end of the Templars. There's also a legend that the Templars uh, fought for the Scots at the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314, just after they had been uh, closed down. Uh, in France, but there's no real evidence that that happened or, or why they should have ended up fighting the English. They weren't persecuted in England, for example, particularly. So that's really the Templars. The other great military order of the period, the Hospitallers, uh, also had a profound effect on the period. They were not persecuted like the Templars. and. Again, like the Templars, they had fortresses, they had wealth. The Templars made money from trade and banking. The Hospitallers had on the plains around Acre and along that strip of Outremer along the coast in the Holy Land, uh, they had all the sugar plantations. So they controlled the sugar trade to the courts of Europe. 
and became hugely wealthy through that, quite apart from being given bequests and land and money uh, by kings and aristocrats uh, around Europe, just as the Templars had been. And, and they were an older order, slightly older order. They had been around running hospices in Jerusalem, uh, even before the First Crusade, but they had been persecuted. They established this hospice in 1099 when the First Crusade took Jerusalem and then were officially established by the Blessed Gerard in uh, about 1113. So they just predated the Templars. But they ended up with a military arm. They, they had great fortresses like the Black Basalt Fortress at Tortosa on the coast or Crac de Chevalier further inland. And they again were feared military knights, very much respected, often fought alongside the Templars, had that distinctive um, emblem, their distinctive uh, code, and they survived. I mean, after the fall of Acre in 1291, they went to Rhodes, they set up there, they were pushed out by the Ottoman Sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent in 1522, they went to Malta, and of course that's where the great siege of Malta happened when Suleiman the Magnificent went after them in 1565. Because by then, this legendary uh, crusader clique of knights had simply become uh, African pirates, North African pirates, raiding the Ottoman trading routes along the North African coast. So Suleiman went off them. He lost 40,000 men in that siege and was driven back. His forces were driven back. And after that, the Hospitallers really began their climb to, to prominence again. They became incredibly wealthy. The city of Valletta was built on Malta, um, named after Jean Parisot de la Vallette, their grandmaster at the time of the siege. They got a lot of money from European rulers and did very well. But what's fascinating about the link between the Templars and the Hospitallers is that after the suppression of the Templars, many of the archives and probably the relics of the Templars ended up in Hospitaller hands, partly because the Hospitallers were also present in Cyprus, where the Templars had gone after the fall of Acre in 1291. And they became important in guarding those uh, Venetian rulers and the kings of Jerusalem uh, who had landed in Cyprus, who had fled to Cyprus after the fall of the Crusaders. But what happened in 1571 a few years after the Great Siege of Malta, the son of Suleiman the Magnificent, Salim II, he invaded uh, Cyprus and took it. So all those archives, all those Templar records and relics would have ended up in Ottoman hands or destroyed. And meanwhile, the Hospitallers were also in Malta. They had survived the, the Great Siege of 1565, but there they remained, dominating that island, that small island, for centuries, until, of course, in 1798, Napoleon turned up. He raided the Hospitallers, took all their relics, and possibly including some of the Templar relics, and sailed on to Egypt. That same year, 1798, was the Battle of the Nile, the Battle of Abukir Bay, when the Royal Navy attacked the French fleet. And lo and behold, the French flagship, Lorient, 
exploded, blew up, and that would have been carrying all the, t the Templar and Hospitaller treasures that it had seized in Malta. So those relics, those archives, whatever remained of that history, Crusader history, ended up at the bottom of the Mediterranean, and there they remain. So that is really the end of the Templars. The Hospitallers really survived to this day as the Knights of Malta. So that crusader, crusading legend uh, continues, that, that heritage continues. Then the third great military order of the period were the Teutonic Knights, the German Knights. They were much later than the Hospitallers or the Templars. They had uh, really come out as German Knights uh, with Emperor Barbarossa, Frederick, uh, with the Third Crusade of Richard the Lionheart and others, the, the, the other leaders. Barbarossa had drowned on the way out there. The Holy Roman Emperor died, and so, there were these German knights, and they were stuck in the Holy Land, and they decided to form this order, this Teutonic order. And they sort of represented the whole sort of German idea. I mean, back in the sort of first millennia, uh, you know, post-Christ, you, you ended up with kings in Germany and Francia and places like that, Saxony, such as uh, King Heinrich Tefergler, King Henry the, the Fowler, the, the first great German king, in a sense, the one that is identified, certainly identified by the Nazis, as a great German king, which is why he's buried in Quedlinburg, and it's where Heinrich Himmler used to have torchlight ceremonies there to, to honor him and honor the foundation of the G German state or the German idea, the expression of German identity. And the Teutonic Knights really were an idea, an expression of that identity. So there they were in the Holy Land when Barbarossa's son, Emperor Frederick VI, died in 1196. Some German knights went back uh, to Europe, but others stayed, and the King of Jerusalem, Amaric II, decided that these German knights, these Teutonic knights, should become a religious military order backed by the Augustinians. So they became this military order and ended up with that famous German cross on their surplus, the Iron Cross. And that's where you can really see the beginnings of this German identity. It was the Teutonic Knights. And as you go through history, so those, those sort of iconic images of the Teutonic Knights were picked up by the German state. There's a photograph in 1902 of Kaiser Wilhelm II wearing the surplus of the Teutonic Knights with that German cross on it. So it became that, that sort of totem, that, 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 that sort of iconic vision of what Germany was. And during the Weimar Republic, a lot of middle-class Germans started identifying, taking that iconography of the Teutonic Knights and wearing it, promoting it, whether it was the skulls or the Iron Cross, all those sorts of things, the black uniform. And yes, 
that you can see it in the SS. Heinrich Himmler saw the SS as a reincarnation of the Teutonic Knights, and that's where it all began to take a deeply sinister twist. So you take the Totenkopf division of the SS with the Death Head Skull, you get the Iron Cross, you get all these things that seem to go back to the Teutonic Knights, even though the Nazis themselves suppressed the actual Teutonic Order itself in 1938. But that is the Teutonic Knights. And if you go around Europe today, such as Vienna, and you see tombs of the Teutonic Knights, you see the, those iconic images, you see the skulls, you see the German cross everywhere. And, and that comes from that Crusader period. So those were those three great military divisions. Again, you know, they sort of lost their raison d'etre, like the Templars, after the fall of the Crusader Kingdom in 1291 um, to the uh, Egyptian sultans. So, so that was really the beginning of the end for, for the, the military aspect of these Crusader knights. There were, of course, other strange and, and, and peculiar to that period uh, military orders. You, you had, for example, the Order uh, of the Holy Sepulchre, the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre. And they actually predate all those knightly groups, those other groups, because they came over with the Crusade, the First Crusade of 1099. There was a need to guard the, the sacred site, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so this order, this band of knights grew up to protect it. They were given some peculiar authority by the Pope to allow them to, for example, pardon a man on the way to the scaffold, to cut a man down for the hangman's noose, to, to declare that a bastard was not a bastard, to change the baptism name of people. They even had the power to ride a horse into any church they chose. So that was that order. And, and actually, they, they continue to this day, as it's said that there are 30,000 around the world. And, and, but it's really a restoration society now. It's, it, it raises money to promote the Catholic Church and, and, and preserve its buildings. And that includes, of course, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But that is an order that goes back you know, a thousand years. It's absolutely astonishing. And it comes from the time of Crusades. Uh, another extraordinary order from that period, uh, and this was founded in 1119, was the Order of St. Lazarus, the Leper Knights of St. Lazarus. And like the Hospitaller Knights, they were there to look after specifically lepers because there was a terrible problem with leprosy in the Holy Land at the time. And it was the leper knights who looked after them. And several of their grand masters actually had leprosy. It was a terrible affliction, but they were there with their surpluses with the green cross on them this time, not the splayed red cross of the Templars. And the leper knights were always there to tend, but they had a military side as well. And you can see that by the fact that they fought in the 1244 Battle of Forby in the Holy Land, a huge battle against the uh, Ayyubid Sultan of Egypt, and in which you know, about 5,000 Christians were killed. Only three, three 
Teutonic Knights were left alive at the end of that battle. But yes, the Leper Knights of St. Lazarus actually fought at that battle. They also fought in the 1291 uh, Siege of Acre, that final stand, that last stand uh, of the Knights in Acre before the Christians were pushed out of the Holy Land. And there were other knightly groups of that period. A lot of them came and went, were reformed, absorbed. Many occurred in Spain because the Spanish, of course, had that constant problem of dealing with the Moors, of trying to push the Moors um, out of uh, Granada and other places, other, other parts of Spain. Uh, you know, a lot of that was accomplished in 1248 when Seville fell to the Spanish to the King of Castile, Ferdinand III. But it took uh, Isabella and Ferdinand later on to, to, to the 15th century to actually push them out of southern Spain and, and, and throw the Moors out completely. So there were always these different orders of knights, whether you take the Order of the Golden Spur, which is still around today, absorbed into the Catholic Church, one of the papal knightly orders. You've got the Order of Santiago, so all these strange orders, all these knightly groups um, were formed, uh, usually by nobility, usually Catholic nobility, uh, who wanted to uh, create some sort of specialty group. But the ones that survived, the ones that uh, you know, had more of a focus on medical care as well, um, that grew up as traders, that, that had other dimensions to them. These were the ones that tended to prosper and survive, rather than these more ad hoc groups that just formed to, to, to fight a, a, a given battle or uh, fight in a, a particular part of Europe. Uh, you know, I mentioned the um, papal orders today, the, the Order of the Golden Spur, also known as the Order of the Golden Militia, the Supreme Order of Christ, which really came out of the Order of Christ from Portugal. And, and you get sort of three other um, orders as well in the Catholic Church. There are other parts of knightly heritage that go back a long way. People talk about bullfighting today, but you can see the threads of bullfighting in Spain today, certainly in places like Andalusia. You can, you can thread that back to the Crusades. It's said that El Cid, the great Castile warlord who died in 1099 in the siege of Valencia, that he um, practiced his lance skills by charging at bulls, by killing bulls. Uh, no one knows whether that's actually true, but there's certainly a point to be made that later on, the uh, King Ferdinand III of Castile, his knights, when they were training to fight the Moors, and of course Ferdinand ended up taking Cordoba and Seville, that his knights practiced their knightly skills, their lance skills, their horsemanship, uh, by fighting wild bulls, by attacking bulls. And eventually uh, they did it on foot and that turned into the matador spectacle you see today. Like any true Brit, I tend to uh, support the bull, but uh, rather than the uh, take the Hemingway approach of lauding it and thinking it's fantastic. But, but again, you can see these sort of ancient threads going back a very long way indeed.
And that brings me really to the postscript. Because what I want to do with the postscript is really look at why the Templars were destroyed. And it wasn't just greed. It's quite interesting to see why they were charged with heresy. Yes, it was convenient for King Philip IV of France to attack them on that level. But it'd be interesting to see whether there was any truth in those charges that were laid against them in 1307. For example, it's always said, and I... I brought Baphomet, the god Baphomet, into my book Pilgrim because he's a fascinating figure. It was said that the, the, the Templars uh, despised the, the cross, that they actually were heretics, that they in fact worshipped in secret in their secret ceremonies, this goat-headed god uh, called Baphomet. But there's no evidence that this ever happened. And uh, there, there's some evidence to show that Baphomet is, is a corruption of the word Muhammad. And so maybe it's being suggested that the Templars had Islamic connections. And certainly they, they made friends with Islam. This idea that they were constantly fighting uh, the Arabs and the Muslims and the Holy Land is nonsense. There were very few crusades, very few crusades of note, probably the first crusade of 1099 and the third crusade of uh, 1189 were, were the only ones worth mentioning. Most of the time over 200 years that the crusaders and the Christians were in the Holy Land, it was just trade and that's how the Templars made their money. It wasn't in their interest to, to to go on fighting the whole time with the locals. And there was sort of deterrence and detente. The, the, no one had the, the power to force the others out right until 1291 and the, the end of the Crusaders. So yes, there were links with, with the Muslims and, and, and the Templars even signed an accord with the Assassin's Cult, a treaty with them. So everyone was doing business with everyone else. It's what happened in the Holy Land. There's also an idea, there was an accusation that the Templars worshipped cats. And again, there's no evidence of that. The cat was mentioned partly because of the witch's familiar. It was, it was easy to accuse them of witchcraft, essentially. And also the ancient Egyptians uh, had a lot of mummified cats in their tombs. And so there was a religious dimension there. So, so there was that chance of accusing the Templars with heresy of saying, you know, you have these strange witchcraft tokens, these familiars, you have these links to ancient gods that aren't the, the true Christ and the true God of the Christians. So they were charged with that. They were also accused of denying Christ and spitting on the cross in their ceremonies. But it has been mentioned, it's been suggested, that this was simply hazing, that they were being trained for escape and evasion or when they were captured by the Muslims. I doubt that actually, because if you look at the aftermath of the Battle of 1187, none of the Templars uh, reneged on their religion or stepped aside from, from Christ and, and said they, they weren't practicing Christians and, or, and they never denied their Christian belief and they were all beheaded by Saladin after the Battle of Hattin. So, I, I can't imagine that was an issue either. Again, it was just the, the sort of uh, the, the Inquisition that Philip IV set up. It was convenient for them to, to bring all this to light. 
It was also said that they were friends of the Cathars, who of course were persecuted uh, as heretics by the Christian church, uh, by the French kings. And true, the uh, Templars actually helped protect some of the Cathars down in Languedoc. They employed the Cathars because there were many educated Cathars. There were very many Cathars who are traders and merchants and shippers, and, and they were very useful to the to the Templars. And again, it was this idea that the Templars tended to get on with everyone because it was in their interest to do that. They weren't always fighting, and they didn't want to really crusade against the Cathars. So again, there's there's that legend and that myth has grown up, just as that legend and myth has grown up connecting them to the Freemasons, so there's the legend and myth that has grown up connecting them uh, to the Cathars and, and other heretic organizations like the Albigensians and others. But these were all things that, 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 that Pope Clement V had actually absolved them of doing, but just didn't make it public and, and we know what happened after that. That's why the Templars were, were destroyed in France. Anyway, those are the military orders. I hope it's been a, a fascinating one. It has always intrigued me and, and the history behind it and what happened and how they evolved over the centuries or how the views of them have, have been absorbed by rulers and, and used to fit the political ambitions and, and aims of the day, whether it's the Nazis or uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II, the Kaiser with a withered arm. You know, all these groups, all these organizations have been used later on to promote identity, to promote the, the self-belief of regimes in later centuries. And so it brings me to wish you all a very happy Christmas. And on a historical note, it's worth mentioning two deities that were also apparently born on December the 25th. One is Horus, the Egyptian, the ancient Egyptian god of war and the sky, who had the falcon head. He was born on December the 25th. And so too, apparently, was Mithras, the Persian sun god who entered a Roman mystic culture as Mithras and, and we all know about the Mithraic Roman cults uh, on which so much of Christian belief is based as they believed in resurrection and their churches, their places of worship um, often tend to look somewhat like Christian churches as well. So those are two deities that share the date of birth with the Christ child. So I thought that from a historical perspective, I should bring in at Christmas. And it just shows that so many religions um, share so many patterns, share so many uh, common uh, beliefs and interests. But uh, I thought I'd just bring that up um, because that's, uh, that's what history does. Anyway, until next time on Bloody Bites, happy Christmas and happy new year. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.